Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from our studios in London. I'm Lise Doucette. We start this programme in the United States, where it's a holiday weekend. Happy Independence Day. But this year's celebration come as COVID-19 cases continue to rise, where frustration grows with the financial cost of the lockdowns. And what's more, racial tensions still simmer after the killing of George Floyd by a white police officer. But President Trump has his eye on the November elections. So last night he took to his favourite stage, a packed political rally. And this one had a dramatic setting, the soaring Mount Rushmore monument of former presidents, a backdrop to rail against the recent tearing down of historical statues. The president took aim at the left and said many in America no longer tolerate differing views. In our schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate boardrooms, there is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commandments, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished. Strong words from President Trump. His challenger, Joe Biden, has also been speaking to Americans on this Independence Day, not in a stage, but in this advert. We have a chance now to give the marginalized, the demonized, the isolated, the oppressed a full share of the American dream. We have a chance to rip the roots of systemic racism out of this country. We have a chance to live up to the words that have founded this nation. This Independence Day, let's not just celebrate the words. Let's celebrate that promise commit to work. The work we must do to fulfill that promise. Remain locked in the battle for the soul of this nation. Joe Biden on this nation. Well, in some parts of this nation, it's the deadly virus which is preoccupying people. States such as Texas, so eager to end their lockdowns as soon as possible, are now reversing those plans just as quickly. In cities like Houston, infection rates have hit record numbers. Hospitals are running out of beds. Coralie Burrow reports from Houston. Only a few weeks ago, the Wildcatter Saloon was packed with people enjoying a night of music and dance. Republican Governor Greg Abbott had confidently declared that the Lone Star State was open again for business and that the coronavirus was under control. But now that Texan swagger is gone. Reopening has been hastily rolled back as COVID infection rates surge, and bars like the Wildcatter have had to close down again. Governor Abbott, small business owners are the backbone of this country, and you're breaking that backbone. Bar owner Justin Whitfield is angry and wants the governor to know that. It's a slap in the face. I, I don't understand the, the reasoning behind it, to be honest with you, especially on a place like this where most of the bar is outside and people can social distance six feet. So they pretty much just categorized all bars as the devil and they've cast us aside. Hi, have you ever had a nasal swab done before? Okay, what we're going to do is... I'm gonna take Texas was one of the first states to reopen its economy in early May. 
But by the Memorial Day holiday at the end of that month, the state started reporting an increase in COVID cases. Just breathe through it. I'm in downtown Houston, where people are showing up by car and by foot to get a free coronavirus test at this outdoor facility. Traffic is backed up as far as the eye can see. In the past couple of weeks, cases have gone from 2,400 a day to over 8,000 this Wednesday alone. In Houston, Texas, we're having a surge of cases. I'm admitting in the hospital six to ten new patients every day, and they're sick. They're coming with pneumonia, fever, strokes, heart attacks. They're getting sicker and sicker, and we've got to stop this disease process. Dr. Joseph Gath is an infectious disease specialist running the testing site. He told me they're testing up to 100 people an hour here. He attributes the spike in corona cases to a lack of leadership. We can't have Houston doing something different than Louisiana, New York, or whatever. We need to have a basic message. Someone in charge needs to get on TV in the United States and say, United States, we have a public health emergency. Here's what we expect. Texans are resilient. We are tough and we are determined. We can accomplish anything we set our minds to. Much like the White House, the message from the Texas governor is mixed, muddled by the desire to open up the economy as soon as possible. As hospitals statewide began to reach capacity, Governor Abbott issued a sweeping order on Thursday, requiring Texans to wear face masks in public. Just a month ago, there were few COVID-19 cases, and hospital space was abundant. Just a month ago, many thought that Young adults had no reason to fear COVID-19. But today, COVID is spreading like never before. We are now at a point where the virus is spreading so fast, there is little margin for error. Lack of consistent messaging has been compounded by youthful recklessness. Here in Houston, 60% of currently hospitalized COVID-19 patients are under 50 years old, and young people like 34-year-old Robbie Robinson are becoming infected. The younger generation is not, they're not taking it serious. They're going to continue having fun. This is what we know. This is all we know how to do. I mean, this is why we work, you know, the 21 to 33-year-olds, they basically live to party, and they're not going to stop that. If bars are open, they're just not taking it serious. And I was one of them until four weeks ago. For now, bars remain closed, and nights like this may not happen again. The state is bracing for another holiday weekend. State officials are begging people to celebrate this one differently. The Houston Chronicle headline warns, stay at home this July 4th weekend. Independence Day in the Lone Star State won't be the same. An Independence Day like no other. That was uh, Coralie Burroughs reporting from Houston. Well, when it comes to lockdowns, today was the biggest unlock in England. After 15 weeks of coronavirus restrictions, today people here were able to get a haircut, raise a pint at a pub, or even eat a meal in a restaurant. Some businesses will still remain shut, still unable to implement all the measures intended to keep the virus away. 
but so many have been waiting for this moment for so long. Tim Holloway runs a hotel in the south of England. We own a 15-bedroom hotel in the New Forest, and we have a restaurant that normally has 40 covers. Reopening, we've had to change quite drastically what we are able to offer, so functions seem, at least at the moment, to be out the window. And we've had to reduce the capacity in the restaurant by almost half as well. With the reopening, I think some more clarity around the date quicker would have helped in terms of going to the market, getting bookings, letting people know so we can start to build our businesses back up. I think, you know, when I was shutting up the business and, you know, covering windows and putting signs saying, you know, no cash here, etc., etc., it was pretty demoralizing. But now... The grass is cut and the new menus are printed. (laughs) The staff are back. They've all got tans and long hair and they look a bit scruffy, but, you know, they're all happy to be back. And, yeah, I I can't wait. Long hair and happy, hotelier Tim Holloway. So life as we knew is just starting to return, but governments everywhere are warning. This deadly virus still hasn't gone away, and there's still a risk that lockdowns could return, especially when there's local outbreaks. And that's what's happened in Spain, which had one of the strictest lockdowns in Europe. Just as Spaniards were enjoying the new freedoms, the government in Catalonia has reimposed controls on an area of 210,000 people after there was a sharp rise in infections. From now on, no one will be allowed to enter or leave Segria, an agricultural area west of Barcelona, which includes the city of Lleida. For more details on what led to this decision, I've been speaking with to Miguel Pueo. He's mayor of the city of Lleida. We've gone back into lockdown in Lleida, in the broader local area, as a result of the increase of COVID-19 cases detected. Families and hoteliers have had to postpone the plans they resumed after the first confinement. The first thing we perceive with intensity is the feeling of sadness, of steps backwards, but also hope because in the past months we have learned how to cope with this situation. On Saturday, the Catalan Health Department confirmed there had been another 155 diagnoses in in the Lleida Health Region in the past day, up from the 60 that had been announced on Friday. In total, there are currently 1,706 COVID-19 cases in the health region, of which uh, 599 are at car homes. So is the outbreak mainly in the care homes? We've, all, we've also heard that it was also to do with the slaughterhouses and agricultural firms. Well, in Segria County, there are a sizable number of slaughterhouses and agricultural firms. The city and the broader county has experienced a much higher increase in COVID-19 cases compared to the rest of Catalonia over the past week, when an area with quite a bit of tourism and it's really difficult for our hotels, bars, etc. to have to shut again. 
Are you hearing from the people in your city that they're not happy, that they're frustrated? The first thing we perceive with intensity is the feeling of sadness, of steps backwards, but also hope, because in this past month, we have learned how to cope with this situation. Do you have any sense of how long the measures will need to be in place again? A long 15 days. That's a long time for people who've been in lockdown before for so long. You're not seeing any any signs that people will protest against them, oppose them? Mayors are closest to the citizens. We can do things like remind citizens to wear masks and maintain distance. We are committed to the decision of the Generalitat, of the Catalan government. I ask the local people for their tolerance and solidarity. The virus has not gone away. Now we must make a special effort to bend this contagion curve in Lleida. The brave words of the mayor of Lleida in Catalonia in Spain. That was Miguel Pueyo on the road ahead with the restrictions. Coming up on NewsHour, books written by democracy activists start to disappear from Hong Kong libraries just days after Beijing imposed a new national security law. We speak to one of the authors. My book argues that Hong Kong is a de facto sovereign city-state, and maybe that gives the Chinese government some idea that the independent movement is somehow being encouraged by my book. I think the Chinese government should cancel the national law sometime or later. Otherwise, there won't be peace here. That's later on News Hour. And just a reminder of our top stories this hour on the BBC World Service. In his Independent Day message, President Trump says the US is on the way to a tremendous victory over COVID 19, despite the evidence suggesting otherwise. listening to News Hour on the BBC World Service. Well, there's only four months to go to the US presidential election. That may seem like a long way off, but it is such a crucial election. And last weekend, the pop star Beyonce urged African Americans to take part. Vote like our life depends on it, she said, because it does. She also praised the Black Lives Matter protests, saying, I'm encouraging you to continue to take action, continue to change, and to dismantle a racist and unequal system. She was speaking at the BET Awards, which stand for Black Entertainment Television, and she wasn't the only artist making strong statements in the wake of George Floyd's death. The BBC's former North America editor, Mark Mardell, has been looking at how much black music and black culture have changed politics in America now and in the past. See, everyone gets a game piece, but what does yours say? Well, mine says, I'm a black man born in America. You gotta be the voice for the black people in your household, and it has to start today. If you like black culture, if you have black friends, what I've seen is something we haven't seen in this country. Terence Blanchard has written the score for 17 of Spike Lee's movies and is a trumpeter of renown. He says this is a moment for optimism or at least faith. Young people from all different walks of life out there fighting for what's right. Nobody's born racist, man. It's something you learn. Fighting for what's just. 
at the same time, throughout every industry here, people are being called out for their biases. You know, we've seen it in sports. We've seen it in merchandising. You know, we've seen it all over the place. So let's hope we see it in legislation. But we have been here before. This is hardly the first time change has been in the air. 1963, the March on Washington. At the height of the civil rights movement, a demand for an end to segregation and discrimination, and one of the most powerful speeches the world has ever heard. At this time, I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation, Dr. Martin Luther King. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And some of the most powerful music, too, bringing protesters black and white together. 22-year-old Bob Dylan was on the platform. But it was Peter, Paul and Mary who sang the Dylan song, the protest movement that made its own. The crowd linked together, swaying, hands held aloft. Someone not there that day was struck by the power of that song, Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke was inspired. He said, from now on, it's not going to be about how pretty the voice is. It's going to be about believing the voice is telling the truth. Full of admiration, but stung, perhaps, that this anthem was written by a white folk singer. He was about to write one of his own, which has stood the test of time. I was born by the river. Among the many artists who've covered Change is Gonna Come is Betty Levette. And she knew Sam Cooke back in the day. Well, knew is stretching it a bit. She was 18 months old, crawling round while a bunch of musicians had a good time. Well, my family sold corn liquor in western Michigan in the 40s, and that was when Sam first joined the Soul Stirrers, and even before that, the blind boys of Mississippi and Swan Silvertones, all those people had always come to our house. Uh, my mother made fish sandwiches, chicken sandwiches, and, and they had the liquor. And of course, in 1946, if you wanted a drink, you couldn't just drop into a bar if you were black. A bunch of entertainers drunk, they're going to sing. <laughs> Sam Cooke was welcome at Betty's parents' joint. Not so when he arrived at a motel in Shreveport, Louisiana. Wonderful. He and his band had made reservations, but when they arrived, the desk clerk took one look at them and said, no vacancies. Wonderful. He protested. His wife told him to quieten down. They'll kill you. Wonderful. They ain't going to kill me because I'm Sam Cooke. His wife replied, no, to them, you're just another, well, you know. They didn't kill him, but they did arrest him. It fueled his determination to write a song of hope. I go to the movie and I go downtown. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. The music of the civil rights era did bring people together, but has a more recent revolution in music one new hearts and minds. This is America. Don't get you slipping now. All oh, my life I has to fight. All oh, my life I hard times like yeah. Here we come. Yeah. 
not just that black artists from Beyonce to Kendrick Lamar are part of the American mainstream culture now. It's that their very political concerns are central. I want to dedicate this award to all of my brothers out there, all of my sisters out there inspiring me, marching and fighting for change. Surely that must have an impact on a young white audience. Terence Blanchard is not convinced how deep this goes. He wrote the score for Black Klansman, Malcolm X and Spike Lee's latest film, The Five Bloods. And sitting alongside his music in the film, this song. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On was written after one of the four tops told the story of seeing, from his tour bus, anti-war protesters attacked by police. Terence says, people hear the melody of our plight without knowing what the words mean for us. Yeah, that is a metaphor. Mother, mother, mother. There are far too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of us dying. Picket signs, you know, don't punish me with brutality. I mean, think about it. Those words are powerful. And the sad part about it, not only are they powerful, but they're still relevant. That's the sad part. It's funny because I was just on a Zoom call a couple of days ago with a friend of mine who's a film executive, and he was just talking about the movie. You know, he said, man, and he's a little older than me, and he goes, man, I've been loving that song for years, and I've danced to it, and he said, but man, when I watched the movie, I had the subtitles on, and it hit me what the words really meant. And I had to tell him, I said, look, dude, you're describing exactly what I've been talking about. And he's a well-meaning dude, a guy with a good heart, not a malicious bone in his body, but it's conditioning. It's the way you're brought up. It's hard to fight that, but that's where the battle lies at the core of your belief system. You know, no matter how well-meaning they are, when they leave any protest or when they leave any situation, they go home to a situation that has none of that oppression. It's just the reality. Those protesters will leave a protest and be on the highway and won't have to worry about the police misjudging them. I'm a young black man. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's um, it's such an interesting thing to think that, you know, doing all that I can. I could walk the streets and be mistaken for somebody who's up to no good. And that was the composer Terence Blanchard ending that report by our former North America editor, Mark Mardell evocative music and essential moment. You can hear Mark's third and last report in this series tomorrow, where he will be focusing on former President Barack Obama's approach to the divide in America. Stay with us. More news to come on NewsHour. Welcome back to NewsHour. The popular social media app TikTok is trying to distance itself fast from Beijing as it seeks to limit what could be huge commercial damage caused by a ban just imposed by India. TikTok has some 200 million users in India, but it's one of 59 Chinese apps blocked by Delhi as tensions rise over a long-standing border dispute. India accuses China of intruding on its territory, and China blames the Indian military for sparking a confrontation. So just how Chinese is this TikTok app owned by a Beijing-based ByteDance? I've been speaking to the BBC technology correspondent, James Clayton. TikTok say that... They have deliberately 
decided to put a, a kind of Chinese wall, excuse the pun, between them and the Chinese government. So they've set up offices in California and they say that any data collected in places like the US is kept in the US and if the Chinese government requested that data they would never ever give it to them. So that's that's what TikTok says. Well what about the other Chinese apps blocked by Delhi? TikTok is one of the best known but are there others which pose other problems or is it all about but, politics? Yeah I mean you know there are apps run by Alibaba and Tencent and things like that but but, but to put this into context it's TikTok that really will um, be by far the most influential app that is being blocked, you know, from from the Indian government. I mean, to put this into, into perspective, TikTok is huge in India. It's been downloaded hundreds of millions of times in India. I, th- I think it's uh, TikTok's biggest market. To simply get rid of that is a huge statement. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago when India was doing a similar sort of unofficial ban uh, for a similar dispute with China. And I think most people wouldn't really have noticed that there was a sort of unofficial boycott going on. It wouldn't have really affected their lives. This time, people will really know about this because literally hundreds of millions of particularly younger Indians won't be able to use their favourite app. So this is pretty important in terms of how it affects the everyday lives of younger Indians. When one thinks of Beijing companies posing security risks, we think of Huawei and the 5G technology. Huawei as well says we are not an arm of the Chinese government. We, you're safe to operate with us. Is there any parallel? Yeah, there, there is a parallel. So there are laws in China that are very different to laws in places like America, the UK, the West more generally, which is essentially if the Chinese government asks a company for their data or access, that company would need to acquiesce. Now, those laws basically don't exist in other countries in that way. And so that's the way that it's linked. One of the issues that governments around the world, one of their issues with Huawei is, oh, look, what would happen if the Chinese government requested all of this stuff? Would you uh, say yes to that? Now, of course, Huawei would say, no, 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 no. But the counter argument is, well, can, can you actually say no to the Chinese government? And I think it's the same issue here. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Lise Doucette, and this is News Hour. Well, first came China's new national security law passed on Tuesday, a move seen as the biggest change in Hong Kong since Britain handed the city back to China in 1997. Now books written by prominent democracy activists are disappearing from the city's libraries, including authors like the young campaigner Joshua Wong and the lawmaker Tanya Chan. The city's leisure and cultural services department says the books have been removed until it's clear if they violate this new law. Now, Chinese leaders insist its sweeping powers won't suppress freedoms, but there have already been arrests of individuals carrying independence flags or shouting slogans, and some of the most visible faces of last year's major protests have already slipped out of the territory to escape possible detention and extradition to the Chinese mainland. Well, another author whose books have been removed from library shelves is the scholar Horace Chin, known as Wan Chin, or the godfather of localism, for his evocative writing on the special essence of this city-state. On the line to Hong Kong, I asked for his reaction. It's quite a sad thing. 
to see my books or books by Joshua as well as another uh, legislator, which are not no longer available for public reading. So it's a sad thing because censorship is quite unusual in Hong Kong. Unless for some obviously uh, sexual things, but um, not this kind of political writing. Do you think this is now the new reality of Hong Kong after the new security law passed by Beijing? I think so. They're coming, and they're coming more and more obviously. After freedom of speech, after books, after posts being posted on uh, in restaurants as well as uh, in the street, and uh, flags saying that uh, Hong Kong should be uh, free, or even a wearing T-shirt that simply say "Free Hong Kong." Even though your books have now been banned from the libraries, will they be available at bookshops? Do you think? I think they should be available in bookshops, but I I should um, anticipate some problems for further circulation or even being printed in Hong Kong. I already have some difficulties to have books printed in Hong Kong, so maybe I have to print books later, perhaps outside Hong Kong, say in Taiwan. Do you worry about your own safety? Uh, not yet. But uh, I think they will come after me. They were increasing the pressure bit by bit by testing uh, the the reaction of Hong Kong people as well as the international world. And what do you think it is in your books, in particular, that they would we say are worried about or even scared about? My book argues that Hong Kong is a de facto sovereign city state by saying that it has its own currency, its border control. Its visa policy, as well as its、um, independent membership in international organizations, these are facts. But、um, not many people try to wrap them up together and argue that what is in one country, two systems, is that is actually two countries, two systems. But of course, that country is a dependent、uh, territory of China. Is this political rhetoric being tolerated locally for some time? But Until when the、um, large protest happened last year, and people are crying for independent Hong Kong, then when they are interviewed, they say that Hong Kong is a, a quasi-state or is a almost a country, and maybe that gives the Chinese government some some idea that the independent movement is somehow.、Uh, Being encouraged by the ideas that I promoted in my book. What would you still aspire for? One country, two systems. What do you think is still possible? It's still possible if the Chinese lifted that national law by saying that peace and order is restored, and then instruct somehow the Hong Kong government to draft the Basic Law Number Twenty Three about、um, national security, and then start the. A local、uh, drafting of that law, but of course it's quite difficult for local drafting of the law. But anyhow, I think the Chinese government should cancel that laws sometime or later. Otherwise, there won't be peace here. I mean, once the National Security Bureau is being set up in Hong Kong, that bureau is trying to do things or to exercise power, and it is、uh, above the law in Hong Kong, so、uh, they can do what they want. I'm trying to listen to you closely to see whether you've completely given up hope that the Hong Kong that you write about with so much affection can continue to be the unique Hong Kong. 
it should be possible to continue that way. I think the current pressure given by the communist government in Hong Kong is, is only for these years. It may stay for some time, but not permanent. Otherwise, a lot of people will leave, and China will no longer have a free financial center that will somehow harm China or detrimental to China's interest at the end. So as you know, some activists have already left fearing for their lives if they want to continue to do the political work they think is essential. For you, for now, you've decided you are staying in Hong Kong and you will continue to write about Hong Kong? I will continue to write either in Facebook or make uh, short political commentaries on the YouTube. I'm not active on the street. I'm active as a news commentator as well as cultural critic. The reason why I won't leave is that if I leave, that means the effect of the communist is already uh, accomplished. I don't want to give people that kind of fear. Unless I'm being instructed to leave, then I, I, I will consider that. And I'm trying very hard by telling the local community that they should continue to argue. I mean, the police said you cannot say free Hong Kong. But I argue that, well, it's just a cry for freedom. It doesn't really mean to overthrow the Chinese government or to promote independence. I mean, free Hong Kong is just to say, have more freedom, enjoy more freedom. And people in Hong Kong are starting to argue that we can say that. It doesn't mean that we have to do anything. It simply means we have the freedom to say so. The very determined author of Hong Kong, Horace Chin. return to lockdown. It's been such a huge challenge for so many in so many places, including for religious groups. With places of worship and religious centres shuttered, maintaining a sense of community hasn't been easy. And that's been a big problem for Russia's Jewish community. 30 years after the fall of communism, it's still recovering from decades of state-sponsored anti-Semitism. Our Moscow correspondent Steve Rosenberg reports on what the Jews of Russia have been doing to build their community and the efforts they've taken during the pandemic to preserve it. Our synagogue was burned down, firebombed, and then was bombed twice. Beryl Lazar is the chief rabbi of Russia. We had crazy times, crazy stories, and that's why people were scared to show their Jewishness, and we had to really get them out of their closet. Things, thank God, changed, and I think that the Jews being proud of who they are is actually one of the important changes here in Russia. The changes have been truly remarkable. I'm standing outside a seven-storey Jewish community centre that was built here a few years ago. President Putin attended the opening. Just opposite, there's a huge Jewish museum, a Hebrew school and kosher food shops. Over the last 30 years or so, Jews in Moscow have begun to develop a real sense of community. But this year, they faced a new threat, not from a government, but from a virus. COVID-19 closed the synagogues, the Jewish centres and the schools. Lockdown meant having to find new ways of keeping this community alive. New technology has helped. Services have moved from the synagogues into cyberspace. The power of the internet harnessed for prayer. 
And then there are the food parcels for senior citizens and low-income families. I watch volunteers filling cardboard boxes with macaroni and meat, fruits and vegetables. During the pandemic, more than 12,000 people have been receiving care boxes ahead of the Jewish Sabbath. Rabbi Lazar explains why. Normally we would have these people coming to synagogues to celebrate the Shabbat, so here we're bringing Shabbat to their home. How important is it to maintain this sense of community? It doesn't make a difference where a person is, whether he's stranded on some kind of island or he's alone in uh, some apartment somewhere. He has to feel that he's part of a community. Pensioner Alla Pavlovna has been receiving food boxes. She admits she's not very religious, but she feels that connection to the Jewish community. And it's nice to know, she says, that old people like me haven't been forgotten. Well, I've moved to the centre of Moscow now. I'm outside a synagogue on Baishaya Bronnaya Street. In 1937, Joseph Stalin's secret police ordered the rabbi here to go on Soviet radio and to announce that Jews in the Soviet Union no longer needed their synagogues. He refused to do that, so he was arrested, tortured and shot. And the synagogue was turned into a trade union office. Well, it's a synagogue once more. I'd like to think that if Judaism here can survive a dictator like Stalin, it can certainly survive this pandemic. The rabbi here today is Itzhak Kogan. In Soviet times, he was an engineer in an atomic submarine yard. In the 1970s, when he requested permission to emigrate to Israel, he was sacked and had to earn a living repairing fridges and working as a porter. Recently, Rabbi Kogan was in hospital with the coronavirus, but he pulled through and he's convinced that the community can overcome any challenge. The Jews survived the pharaohs, he says. We've suffered massacres and recovered. I think our future will be okay. But the chief rabbi of Russia, Beryl Lazar, has no illusions. There are challenges ahead. Sadly, we have seen this, mainly I would say, in the internet. People are already blaming the Jews for the coronavirus. I can't even fathom what could be the connection to the Jews to this virus. But uh, what can we do? There are always going to be people that have come out with crazy theories and they're going to spread them, especially through the internet, where anybody can write whatever they want. And that was uh, Russia's chief rabbi, Beryl Lazar, ending that report on the Russian Jews trying to keep the spirit of community alive during the pandemic by our correspondent, Steve Rosenberg. Interesting report on a community which had to fight to build its community after 30 years uh, after the fall of communism, still trying to fight back after decades of state-sponsored anti-Semitism. Hi, 
I'm Kim Chakanetsa and I'm the host of The Comb from the BBC World Service. This is The Comb. You need The Comb. The Comb now. Need The Comb. The Comb. The Comb is a weekly podcast that unpicks one single African story every week. Why am I different? What is it that drives me? What is my passion? I am a hustler. I hustle. It has been a big eye-opener. The name, The Comb, is because we're combing through the continent for stories that matter. I just thought, what in the world? I actually got emotional about I cried a lot. So here's the thing about the comb. What we really want to do is to get our listeners involved, to put our listeners right at the centre of the podcast, to have them tell us about the stories that they are interested in, the stories that are affecting their lives. And then we can use the journalism of the BBC Africa newsroom to investigate and to look into those stories. That's the comb from the BBC World Service. Just search for the comb wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder of our top story this hour. In his Independence Day message to Americans, President Trump claims the U.S. is on its way to a tremendous victory over COVID-19. News Hour heard from Dr. Joseph Gath, an infectious disease specialist. In Houston, Texas, we're having a surge of cases. We can't have Houston doing something different than Louisiana, New York or whatever. We need to have a basic message. Someone in charge needs to get on TV in the United States and say... United States, we have a public health emergency. Here's what we expect. And in other headlines this hour, a former close aide to Argentina's Vice President, Cristina Fernandez, has been found dead. He'd been a protected witness in a top-level corruption case. And dozens of people have been killed in a raid by cattle rustlers in South Sudan's volatile Jongle state. Listening to News Hour on the BBC World Service. This month could be a momentous one for Afghanistan. The UN says it's cautiously optimistic that historic talks will start between the Taliban and a delegation from Afghanistan in the Gulf state of Qatar. But in Taliban attacks are intensifying, and many Afghans are asking, are they really committed to peace? Dr. Barnett Rubin is at the Centre on International Cooperation in New York, and his new book is Afghanistan, What Everyone Needs to Know. Is he optimistic? I abstain from either optimism or pessimism, and I just try to understand what's going on. There is a better chance now that they will start than there has been at any time since this portion of the Afghan conflict started. I am fairly confident that they will meet at least once But what happens after that, I don't know. They have a commitment to meet once in Doha, but so far they haven't agreed on where the talks will go after that, who will, if anyone will facilitate them and so on. But I think they were likely to start. There's a lot of discussion, as you know, a lot of statements in the United States in the run-up to a presidential election about whether President Trump will suddenly announce he wants to bring all the troops home voices saying we shouldn't put all our forces, the Taliban are not, will not be keeping their commitments. How do you expect this trajectory to run? I mean, where do you see it now in terms of what what is likely to happen with the American forces? Your question is more about Donald Trump than about Afghanistan. He is much less concerned with the fate of Afghanistan to the peace agreement or what happens in the war than he is with his election prospects. And he believes that his base and his supporters want him to get the United States out of Afghanistan. In the run-up to what is possibly going to be the start of the intra-Afghan talks at some point this month, 
Do you see a real regional consensus developing? As you know, in the past, it has often been the regional spoilers who have been complicating factors. I see much more of a regional consensus now than I have at any time in the past 40 years. And the core element of that regional consensus is agreement that the United States should withdraw its troops from Afghanistan in a responsible and negotiated manner. I must commend Zalmay Khalilzad for creating a kind of microclimate of goodwill and agreement, despite the, all the stormy weather and the international system that we have right now. He's got an agreement of China, Russia, Pakistan. Indirectly and informally, he has been communicating with Iran, with the head of the United States Development Finance Corporation to try to start making plans for investment in the region uh, after a peace agreement as a real incentive for all the actors to cooperate. That is a new development. Initially, as you know, and for the many, and during the many months of talks, it was senior military, senior CIA officials who were sitting next to Zameh Halizad. The fact that he's brought in a development person now. How do you read this? He is starting to think about how to create uh, incentives for the Afghans once they do meet to overcome the many obstacles that they will have and also to impress on all of them. And this most especially, I would say, on the Taliban, that there is a lot of assistance uh, and, and sympathy available for Afghanistan, but they won't benefit from it unless they uh, agree to keeping terrorists out. Frankly, countries and companies are not going to be willing to invest in a country where women are suppressed, where there is no freedom of expression. There have to be certain minimal standards which make people confident in the future and confident that stability will endure. As you know, a lot of Afghans don't trust the Taliban. They don't believe they are committed to peace. There's fear that this will be a repeat of 1992 when the Mujahideen marched into Kabul and Kabul collapsed. Do you see any reason to think that way? One of the most salient qualities of uh, Afghan society today, which was not true before these 40 years of war, is the prevalence of mistrust. I, I don't think that wars end because the people who've been fighting war decide, no, we don't want war, we want peace. They, we, they end because the people who've been fighting finally concluded that the fighting is not going to get them what they want, and they want to see how much they can uh, achieve by other means. And that's what everyone in this war is looking for right now. Uh, it's not based on trust. Uh, they will have to build trust. If, of course, it doesn't exist now, but that is the situation in all peace processes. They don't start with trust. Uh, they build it. That's Yeah, well, that's exactly the point. Afghans see what has been an intensification of Taliban attacks since the signing of the deal with the United States at the end of February. Well, that's not quite an accurate description of what has happened. Uh, leading up to the agreement, there were seven days during which the Taliban agreed to and implemented a reduction in violence. After signing the agreement, they did go back to fighting. Uh, but they have so far observed the part of the agreement which obligates them not to attack U.S. or international coalition forces. They did escalate their attacks on uh, Afghan army forces for some time, but they have not undertaken terrorist attacks in major cities or attacked major bases. Peace doesn't break out the moment people start negotiating. Peace is the result of a long and often difficult negotiation. It's not something that happens beforehand.
So you believe that this is a gen- this will be a genuine effort? There are some, even the Afghan president has spoken of a Trojan horse using this peace process as a kind of a fig leaf where their real intention is simply to seize power once the Americans are gone. The Taliban don't want to win militarily in a situation where they are at odds with the whole world and nobody is willing to provide them with any assistance because then they would face tremendous resistance and they would hardly be able to do something. How they behave in the future will not depend on their acting out some supposed intentions that they have, but will depend on uh, how, how the negotiations go, what the circumstances are. Look, just one time I was in a meeting in the White House in the Situation Room where there was people from the intelligence community and someone said, what do you think are the fundamental objectives of the Taliban? And I said, well, first, we're all Americans. Can you tell me what are the fundamental objectives of the United States? Nobody could tell me. People don't work that way. They react to situations given their uh, orientations, and the Taliban are no different. And finally, as the the author of the book, Afghanistan, what everyone needs to know, is there something else you think our listeners should know? I guess I would just like to emphasize how much the Afghans are like everybody else. All this stuff about graveyard of empires, warlike people, proud people, you know. The fact is they're basically human beings with the same aspirations as the rest of us who just had the misfortune to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, only they've been at the wrong place permanently for thousands of years. And we should not burden those attempts further with stereotypes, either negative or romantic about them. I think we can cooperate with them. And I'm a little bit more, uh, and I'll use this word finally, optimistic that it might we, it might happen now than I have been in some time. An admission from Dr. Barnett Rubin, and this was NewsHour. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts. Institutional investors deserve tailored portfolio solutions created by investment experts who understand their portfolio needs. MetLife Investment Management's client-first approach to managing public fixed income, private capital, and real estate assets is institutional, but far from typical. Learn more at medlife.com backslash institutional. That's medlife.com backslash institutional.